You're listening to the Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Katie Putz, recording from Prague in the Czech Republic. Katie, you're always uh, on the move, uh, but it's good to be back with you regardless. Uh, I hope you're uh, yes. enjoying your time in Europe. <laughs> I am. It's great. Um, that's good. I mean, I, I uh, part of the reason we're late to this episode in September was because uh, I, I just actually spent a week in uh, Berlin, which was uh, a fascinating uh, time to sort of be there, talk a lot about China and how perceptions of China have changed in Europe uh, over the last uh, two years, really. I mean, through the pandemic, uh, a lot has changed. Maybe we'll get back to that on the podcast, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I did want to use today's podcast to go back a bit to the Korean Peninsula, where we haven't focused uh, in several episodes now, because there's been an interesting new development with North Korea promulgating a new law. Uh, so, Katie, I thought we could maybe spend our time today just talking about that. Um, and then, uh, don't fret, listeners, we will be back to talk about the SCO summit, uh, which is also big news geopolitically. We've got a flare-up of violence in Central Asia as well, uh, and we'll be back probably later this week uh, to talk about that. And I think Katie is really going to be leading the show there. Uh, but today, uh, let's talk about North Korea. Yes, let's talk about North Korea. So tell me a little bit about the law that you just referenced that was passed in, in North Korea uh, and what that has changed about the situation on the peninsula. Yeah, sure. So uh, the first week of September, or sort of the first nine days of September, uh, are sort of a big a big deal for North Korea. They've conducted two nuclear tests in the past uh, in this week. Uh, it just happens to correspond to their uh, foundation anniversary, which is September 9th. So this year for the 74th founding anniversary of the country, uh, Kim Jong-un, uh, oversaw the promulgation of a new law on North Korea's status as a nuclear weapons state. Uh, and so laws in North Korea obviously have a different type of salience than they do, let's say, uh, in Western countries or elsewhere. So the best way to really understand what happened here is that North Korea updated its nuclear policy, basically how they talk about their own nuclear weapons, what their nuclear weapons are for, how they might be used. Uh, you could even use the word nuclear doctrine uh, to describe uh, what they've done here with this law. It's sort of their equivalent to um, nuclear doctrines in other countries, a document like the Nuclear Posture Review in the United States. Uh, and so it's really a fascinating uh uh, update. Uh, it does, of course, I think, um, move things in a little bit more of a dangerous direction. I can talk about that in more detail in a second. Uh, but there's another piece to what happened, which was that Kim Jong-un himself uh, gave a speech uh, before the Supreme People's Assembly, as North Korea's sort of rubber stamp legislature is known. Um, and in that speech, he sort of unequivocally and unconditionally uh, said that North Korea would never give up its nuclear weapons, uh, which is something that is of course, something that they've said in the past in the context of negotiations, uh, but it's actually quite rare that North Korea will make sort of an unconditional statement about retaining its nuclear weapons. Um, what isn't rare, however, is the fact that Kim basically said that as long as nuclear weapons exist on Earth, uh, North Korea will possess them, basically implying that denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula will happen at the same time as global nuclear disarmament. Uh, and the timing is also interesting with the uh, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaties Review Conference having just wrapped up uh, in New York uh, last month uh, with a disappointing outcome, uh, primarily owing to Russia's behavior uh, at Ukraine's uh, Japarichia uh, nuclear power plant. North Korea didn't feature too prominently, but you know, let there be no doubt that the North Koreans plan to hang on to these weapons for the long haul. So I, I want to dive a little bit more into that speech that he gave. And, you know, the what what does this say about the status of uh, denuclearization talks in so much as they existed? I know there haven't been 
talks for a while, and this is something that South Korea and the United States have been wanting to engage in, but North Korea hasn't played ball. Uh, is, is that door completely shut now? Uh, basically, yes. Uh, you know, I think that would be an unwelcome piece of news for the Biden administration and the Yoon administration in Seoul, who are still very much committed to trying to get North Korea to the negotiating table. I mean, my assessment, just based on everything I've seen out of North Korea since the collapse of the Hanoi summit uh, during the pandemic, and especially since the Eighth Party Congress, which I believe was the last time we talked about North Korea in detail on this podcast, suggests that, you know, not only are they not interested in negotiations over their nuclear weapons, uh, they are doubling and tripling down on their capabilities. Uh, and so this, I think, um, you know, this is for instance, what I wrote about uh, in the last, uh, in the most recently released edition of the Diplomats magazine, um, the push towards more sophisticated delivery systems, new nuclear weapons. Uh, North Korea is probably going to conduct nuclear testing in the coming months. Um, the deployment of tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, all of this points in a uh, in a dangerous direction, in a direction suggesting that North Korea is far from being uh, done with its uh, ambitions as a as a nuclear state. Uh, and so that is really, uh, I think, what Kim Jong-un is getting at here, uh, that not only is he not interested in denuclearization, uh, but he's interested in continuing to oversee the quantitative uh, and qualitative um, increase in North Korea's capabilities. And of course, you know, this is a speech he's delivering internally. So I think this is sort of meant to be reassuring uh, to members of the Workers' mm -hmm. Party of Korea, uh, members of the North Korean military, uh, at a time especially when economic difficulties are particularly stark in North Korea. Kim is repeatedly signaling uh, that he won't make any compromises on national defense. Uh, and, and we've seen this in a number of forms during the pandemic in North Korea, right? Multiple military parades. Uh, last year in October, they held a self-defense exposition in Pyongyang, uh, which was mm -hmm. the first event of its kind where they basically had every missile that they've ever tested uh, in a single room together. Um, so Kim has really been, I think, redevoting attention to uh, at least internally emphasizing that uh, he's not going to make any compromises with the outside world or the United States on on his nuclear weapons. Uh, and so what has been the, the response from the United States, South Korea, Japan uh, to this shift in, in North Korean posture? And, and as you mentioned at the top of, of our conversation, this sort of change in North Korean nuclear policy in so much as, as we know what that that policy is. Has this has this affected how the United States and, and these other parties approach North Korea? Um, do you expect to see changes in tactics? Because I, I think for a long time, denuclearization has been the constant drumbeat. Um, and that's that door that door seems to be closed. So what's what's next? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, maybe I can describe really quickly what the actual postural change that I find most concerning is. Uh, and so, yes. uh, yeah, and then we can talk about the reaction because it's actually really, really interesting timing because the U.S. and South Korea just had uh, the first meeting of their extended deterrence, uh, a strategy and consultation group, the EDSCG, uh, since January 2018 uh, to talk about many of these issues. Of course, they were <laughs> caught a little bit off guard by North Korea releasing this major law just days before the allies were supposed to talk about deterrence. Um, but so this law isn't the first of its kind. Uh, North Korea first passed this uh, first passed a law declaring itself a nuclear weapon state, uh, enshrining that status in its own constitution in April 2013 uh, under under Kim Jong Un. And so this new law uh, updates the previous law. Uh, you know, it's not really an amendment. It's a it's it's a new law, but it, it adds considerable detail. So there's this list of conditions under which North Korea would use nuclear weapons to defend its interests. And, you know, some people have been trying to parse this closely to really understand what North Korea is trying to say. But my reading is that it's it's such an ambiguous set of conditions that basically the message from 
from North Korea is that not only would they use nuclear weapons first uh, to defend their interests before others, uh, you know, before the U.S. had to use nuclear weapons against them, um, but that they would use them under a variety of conditions. Uh, so that really isn't new, though. Uh, so a lot of what this law says is repetition. Uh, so the North Koreans, for instance, continue to emphasize that their nuclear weapons have two purposes, fundamentally, the first purpose being deterrence of a general war, uh, and the second purpose being if deterrence fails, um, to basically use those nuclear weapons to, quote, repel uh, hostile forces, basically to engage in nuclear war fighting to try to blunt an invasion of their territory by the alliance. But the new interesting piece, and this is something that I wrote about in my uh, Diplomat magazine article, actually, just weeks before North Korea did this, uh, and we sort of saw this coming for a while, is that... Um, <laughs> You know, in 2013, when North Korea passed its first law, they told the world that Kim Jong-un, uh, in his capacity as supreme commander of the Korean People's Army, was the only person in the country that could use, that could give the order to use nuclear weapons, uh, right? So it's not mm -hmm. like they're going sort of, um, you know, uh, full NATO Cold War style and just delegating that authority to field commanders, which, you know, might actually benefit deterrence because then the U.S. and South Korea couldn't be sure in a conflict that nuclear weapons wouldn't be used against them, uh, even if they were to target and kill Kim Jong-un. And that's the second part of this, which is under the new South Korean administration, uh, threats of decapitating the North Korean regime have become a lot more frequent. Uh, the Yoon mm -hmm. administration uh, has really doubled down on the so-called... Um, 3K suite of capabilities that Korea has been developing. This includes the preemptive strike kill chain uh, with conventional missiles, uh, the Korea Air and Missile Defense uh, Program for air and missile defense, as the name implies, and then the final piece is massive punish uh, punishment and retaliation, which threatens to kill Kim Jong-un in the case that he uses nuclear weapons. And so what Kim did with this new law is really the obvious solution. It's the solution the United States adopted during the early Cold War under Eisenhower. Uh, it's the solution that some other nuclear states have looked to in the past as well, which is basically to imply that if Kim Jong-un is killed uh, or if North Korea's nuclear command and control systems are interfered with, that all of North Korea's nuclear weapons will be immediately and automatically launched. Uh, right. So this is what's known in the nuclear jargon as a fail deadly posture. Uh, and so by doing this, basically, Kim is telling South Korea and the United States that it would be a very bad idea for them to try and kill him in a conflict, hoping that that would spare them nuclear retaliation. Uh, so mm. I'd sort of seen this as a logical step for North Korea, just given everything we know about their forces, their strategy, what they're concerned about from the United States and South Korea. And so now they've actually gone ahead and, and done that. Uh, you know, there are questions about how well that would work in practice, because actually in implementing a system of nuclear command and control that's robust enough to allow for this kind of automatic retaliation only under the conditions where it's warranted, right? Not under conditions mm -hmm. where things have been misperceived in the fog of war. That's actually very difficult to do practically. Uh, and so I think questions remain about how exactly the North Koreans will go about doing this. So this seems to me to open up a, a very risky scenario. You know, if, if you have, uh, I know just from dealing with other countries that have dictators, there's occasionally rumors that they've died or they don't come out for a couple of weeks and, and people start talking. So it, does this escalate the degree of risk for errors uh, and mistakes that could result in nuclear war? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's not only those uh, personalistic quirks of monolithic authoritarian regimes that we should be concerned about, but it's also real escalation risks in time of conflict, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we could imagine um, 
you know, I mean, I mean, let's imagine a scenario where North Korea is deploying warheads in a crisis because they might need to use them and they want to deter the United States by sort of generating their forces, which the U.S. would observe from space and then say, oh, Kim Jong-un's about to get serious. He's deploying his warheads. And of course, you know, things go wrong in times of war. Uh, during the Cold War, we've had uh, in the United States uh, so-called broken arrow incidents related to the handling of nuclear weapons. And so it's not mm -hmm. something that, you know, any country is immune to. Uh, organizations comprised of human beings are inherently prone to errors. Uh, and so, you know, uh, during times of war, you have psychological stress, you have crews that'll be handling warheads near highly uh, volatile liquid propellant missiles, for instance, and let's say there's an accident, um, there's a fire, and we don't know anything about the safety or the design of North Korea's warheads, really. So maybe let's say a North Korean warhead inherently uh, just explodes with, with some limited nuclear yield on North Korean territory. I mean, how are the North Koreans supposed to really tell in a time of crisis or in the fog of war that that wasn't an attack by the United States using nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. right? So those are the kind of scenarios that could very well lead to inadvertent escalation. There's also conventional scenarios where, you know, the South Koreans might, uh, in a limited conflict, try to send a message to Kim Jong-un by, let's say, shooting a conventional missile at one of Kim's vacation homes. Um, how was Kim supposed to know that that missile that went to his vacation home wasn't just a message, but an actual attempt to try and kill him? And then that encourages mm -hmm. further escalation, too. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. I think this this increases risks. Uh, you know, my hope is that this is something the U.S. and South Korea are going to take to heart. Uh, I actually think that decapitation, uh, we sort of figured out in the Cold War pretty quickly why it was a particularly dangerous type of targeting to threaten against your nuclear armed adversary. Uh, North Korea, for all intents and purposes, is a nuclear-armed state, uh, as much as we might dislike it. Uh, threatening their leadership, threatening Kim Jong-un with sort of preemptive uh, or, or or otherwise with decapitation, I think, uh, only is going to lead to, I think, this kind of messaging, uh, shifts in North Korean posture that will, I think, intensify the risks. So I think I have just one more question, really, which is um, to get back to that point of, well, what what's next? You know, how will U.S. policy evolve to deal with, with this reality? Because I, I think you're right in pointing out that we have to accept that North Korea is a nuclear armed state, that that's just the reality of it. And so, you know, and further that, that they've said denuclearization is off the table. They're not interested in talking about it. So how, how can policymakers approach North Korea in, in an attempt to achieve any kind of constructive dialogue yeah, so, you know, I have spent a lot of time thinking about this, and sort of for a while, my prescription was that the U.S. basically needs to upend 30 years of failed denuclearization policy and deal with North Korea as it is, try to move towards risk reduction. Uh, but honestly, Katie, I mean, looking at, looking first of all at internal North Korean dynamics right now, the effect of the pandemic, uh, how North Korea has positioned itself amid great power competition between the U.S., China, and Russia, and the shifting geopolitics in Northeast Asia— uh, it seems like even if tomorrow, let's say, Joe Biden got up and gave a speech declaring denuclearization dead and that he was ready to deal with North Korea, you know, as it is, uh, it's not obvious to me that the North Koreans would actually reciprocate, uh, where they might mm -hmm. once have done that, right, if the U.S. had actually changed tack. Um, so that is a deeply pessimistic assessment. Um, but, you know, I, I, I still do think it would be good for the alliance, uh, for the U.S., Japan, South Korea, uh, um, you know. Uh, three of the three countries most concerned for their own security with regard to North Korea's nuclear weapons uh, to begin assessing this problem uh, based on the actual threat posed by North Korea's nuclear weapons. And so that means 
fundamentally moving away from denuclearization. Um, I think the militaries and the discussions that are happening within the alliance on deterrence, uh, that discussion has actually moved forward and, and, and started to acknowledge what North Korea's development of all of these capabilities actually will mean in the context of a conflict, uh, which is good, because mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's what we need to do. We need to deal with our adversaries as they are, uh, and that includes North Korea. Um, but for negotiations, uh, I think the prospect is still very dim, uh, very little sign that North Korea is in interested in engaging the outside world. Uh, I think, um, you know, we are going to get more indicators of how exactly North Korea is planning on aligning itself with Russia and China. Um, you know, what we haven't talked about is the recent reporting that Russia is supposedly buying uh, artillery shells and unguided rockets from North Korea to resupply its own stocks in violation of UN sa sanctions. All of this points to, I think, North Korea not only becoming closer with Russia, but also with, uh, uh, with China as well. So that, I think, is going to make it difficult overall uh, to engage the country. So it's a very pessimistic answer. But, um, you know, fortunately, I think part of the solution for North Korea can continue to be deterrence and containment, which is what we'll end up doing by default. All right. Well, this was a very cheery conversation. Uh, I'm glad that we could have it. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add, I think, before we wrap it up? Um, no, I think we can. I think we can leave it there, Katie. Thanks a lot for letting me nerd out about North Korea. Always, always, uh, always fun to do that. Um, always yeah. a pleasure. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, like I said, uh, next time, I think you'll be on the spot to tell us about the SEO and the, <laughs> and the eruption of violence in Central Asia, unfortunately. Um, but in the meantime, uh, let me just thank our listeners uh, for tuning in. Uh, if you've been a subscriber for a while, uh, thanks a lot for doing that. You can leave us a review that really helps the show. And if you aren't yet subscribed, uh, please do, because uh, you'll and keep up with all of our future discussions. Uh, and uh, as always, if you have suggestions for topics you'd like, seen, uh, like to see covered on the show, please do get in touch with either me or Katie by email or Twitter. We're very happy to take that into consideration. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back very soon with more.